This is the Christian Heritage London podcast from London. It's a real privilege to be sitting down with none other than Stephen Clark, pastor of Free Church. What's, what's the full mouthful Free of it? Free School Court Evangelical Church. There you go. It is an awful mouthful. <laughs> Have you always lived in the Bridge End area? No, no, no. Been there since 1998 uh-huh. when I became pastor of the church. Uh-huh. And uh, not so far from Hay on Wye? Oh, a little way from Hay on Wye, yes. Yeah. Did you ever go there and get great deals on books? I remember buying John Stott's commentary on the Johannine letters. Oh, there you go. One of the a very low price, but. They now know the value that's of it. stuff, yeah. and the good stuff there is expensive. That's, yeah. And the liberal rubbish that was once all the rage, you can buy for peanuts. Yeah, yeah. I remember looking through um, uh, one of the bookshops there and asking for the theology section and walking past banks and banks of books. They had the smack of that bit in the screw tape letters where screw tape says to, uh, to the younger demon, Get him to write a book. And this whole idea of writing, writing some book, which no one will really ever read, yeah. but it'll be put, and it won't really serve any purpose, but it'll distract the author. The comparison that can be made with um, someone like Ryle Edwards, who's so criticized in their time, but no one remembers the critic. And I, I've been struck recently by Chesterton's um, saying that uh, uh, a dead thing goes with the flow. But it takes a living thing to swim against That's the flow. Good. Well, I was walking down Oxford Street last week, and I was going in one direction. I think every other human being on the planet was going in the opposite direction. I thought this is a real picture of the Christian life. Oh, there you go. So, uh, were you born into a believing family yourself, Stephen? Well, I was born into a religious family, but I would say that, yeah, it would be much later in life that they came to faith, my parents. Mm. But I was brought up in a gospel church, it was a church which historically had a tremendous social conscience. In the community, it was always known as the poor man's church and the working class church. When I was 15, two students from the college from Barry came for a, a weekend. The church secretary was a saved man. But about seven of my friends were converted in one night mm. on a Saturday night and Gracious. I didn't want to appear different. Mm. So I made out I'd been converted but I hadn't been. But as a result of that the preaching began to get to me. There'd been one or two occasions previously when I'd really felt spoken to but it hadn't come to anything but now I began to be troubled but everybody else now in the church thought I was converted because I'd made out I was. And then I was troubled over assurance because deep down my life hadn't changed mm. and people were just pointing me to verses. So that went on for quite a number of years. There were times when the fellow would be preaching and I would be thinking I could be in hell before he's finished this message. It would be that way. He was a very, very powerful evangelistic preacher. He was a good expositor of the word as well. Well, when I was 18, the church together with a number of people from some other churches used to run a coffee bar. Well, on this particular Thursday, there was a missionary over from uh, South America. And as soon as I met her, I thought, this woman is different. She spoke from Romans 12 
on presenting your bodies as living sacrifice. It was really a message on consecration for Christians. But I felt she was, I just felt this woman has got my life. She's putting it up on a screen. Hmm. And those who have been spoken to after about 40 minutes of this, stay behind for prayer to receive the blessing, which I stayed behind for. Do you know we didn't get out from that place till about quarter to two in the morning. Gracious me. It was one of the most glorious meetings I've ever been in in my life. Mm. It's extraordinary. I had to make sense of what had happened to me. I've been converted. Mm. She started writing to me after she, she moved back to um, Brazil. But whereas I'd always found the Bible, I can never get into Bible study. I can't get into Bible study, you see. I'd made out I was a Christian, but I wasn't. Read your Bible. Oh, I don't want to read the Bible. Suddenly, I, I couldn't couldn't stop reading it. Mm. I went on holidays a few days later. Do you know, I'd go out in the evenings and I was speaking to people that there were a number of sort of uh, nightclub places and I'd, I'd, I'd go to all the youngsters outside and start speaking to them about the gospel and they listened. This was the extraordinary thing. Nobody told me to do this. I just felt, I've got to tell people mm. this message. Mm-hmm. I was working then in, through, through the summer holidays, I was working in, in a factory and I would, Lunchtime, I'd, I'd get my New Testament, and I'll never forget Colossians connected with me big time. And this woman was writing to me. She would be on what would be a pretty extreme charismatic fringe. I didn't know anything of these things, but looking back, that's where she was. Mm. But as she was writing to me, I thought, hang on, what she's saying to me didn't tally with what I'm reading in Colossians. Mm. And then I was, I, I, I sat an entrance exam for Oxford and uh, got accepted and she, she was saying, oh, you know, you go there, there'll be a great emphasis on the mind, but spirit is higher than mind. And I thought, this is tosh, because I was reading in Colossians 3, set your heart on things above, set your mind on things above. And I thought, this, this is nonsense. What the... So God used her to really speak to me. Mm. But I thought, I, I, I can't buy into some of the things she's saying, spirit is higher than mind, and I thought, this just doesn't tally. And the preaching was great, and uh, the pastor was preaching through, through something at the time, and it was connecting. So that was great. And then I left school and worked in a factory till I went off to university the following October. And so you were around, and you were still attending the gospel-type church? Were you oh, around? yeah, it was lovely. It was a great gospel church. The pastor was what I would call a big man. Theologically, he would be, I think you would put him, you'd have to call him an Amaraldian or Amaraldist. Okay. Okay. Having said that, I mean, he was a great lover of John Owen and... Edwards and people like that. But he was a big man, and there was a fellowship that we had with another church about four miles away, which was an independent evangelical church, but also with an Assemblies of God Pentecostal church um, about two or three miles away. Mm -hmm. And there'd be joint open-air meetings Mm -hmm. and joint preaching meetings. He was a big man. He was a gospel man. Mm. Yes, there were no real divisions. Although, although there would have been theological differences, mm. the gospel was the big thing. Ah. Was it Moody said that the important thing is to keep the most important thing as the most important there thing? There you go. Now, Christian, we are sitting in a city, we're sitting in a room, incidentally, which is, has incredible history because around us are 
Martin Lloyd-Jones' own books, yeah. which I find awesome. As I look at the, the Jonathan Edwards, and I remember him saying, uh, when, I found, <laughs> when I found those books, I just devoured them. I read yeah. them again and again and again. Yeah. And you see over there the Haldane and Hodge Romans, as he always uh, interacted with them both in his Romans series. But in this city the expression of the gospel has changed, established the city in mm. extraordinary ways. And from here, the nations, as many yeah. of them have looked back and seen the example. But again, it's been a handful of people sometimes who have just swum against the flow. You will yeah. forces. Well, Lloyd Jones certainly swam against the flow. There are a number of books, but some of the most influential I've ever read were his exposition of Romans 5, Assurance, Romans 6, The New Man, and really then the whole of the Roman series. I, I remember when I first read Romans 5, it just had such an extraordinary stabilising effect upon me. Mm. You're in Adam or you're in Christ. If you've been justified by faith, you've got peace with God. And with that peace secures for us access by um, faith into this grace in which we stand. So although we come reverently and humbly, we're not groveling. Mm. Bold shall I stand in that great day, Zinzendorf's. Then his Roman sex was just stunning. Mm. What it means to die to sin. And I'd been, my home church was a Baptist church. I was always a bit uneasy with some of the arguments that were trotted out for immersion. They both went down into the water. Well, if that means that one was immersed, it meant they both were immersed. But I was persuaded by him that Romans 6 is not dealing with water baptism, but spirit baptism. Mm -hmm. And this is why this was so important. Not long afterwards, I was the college rep for our college in Oxford in the Christian Union. Each college would have had its rep. I was in Lincoln College, where John Wesley had been a fellow. In my first year, the chaplain was a liberal. He didn't know what he believed. It was like pinning jelly to the wall. But in my second year, we had an Anglo-Catholic. He was a nice man. He knew exactly what he believed. In that sense, he was a lot easier to deal with. Well, there were some in the chapel who felt that the college CU group should merge with the chapel. And there were some in the CU group who perhaps didn't have much theological discernment who felt the same way. And I was the college rep for the University of Christian Union. So I said, look, we believe different things. No, 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 I'm sure you must see him. Well, I said, I'll go and see him. So I went to see the chaplain. And I'll never forget, he, he, he was easy to deal with because he was straight. <laughs> he said to me, he said, you believe a heresy that came in in the 16th century. And um, he then went on and he said, and I'll tell you something else with you evangelicals, you love the letter to the Romans, but you end, he said, after chapter 5, chapter 6. Baptism, he says, it doesn't symbolize. It unites us to Christ. If you're not baptized, you're not united to Christ. If you are baptized, you are united to Christ. And so I said to him, yes, I agree 100% with you. I said, but there's more than one form of baptism. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul speaks 
in a similar context about being grafted in he doesn't use the word graft but it's about being you know into the body of Christ and it's by one spirit we were baptized so this is a spirit baptism he looked at me and he didn't know what to say right if I had still believed what I had been taught in my home church I don't know I probably would have to become a Catholic <laughs> I probably would have to taken seriously because the text says that baptism is doing something to us mm. so even at that level I owed Lloyd-Jones a huge ah. debt. And then having read him on Romans 6, when I came to chapter 7, I thought, he's, he's right. This isn't about describing a Christian's battle. This is all about why did God give the law to Israel? And interestingly, Tom Wright, in... Uh, an interview in Thamelios some years ago said he was walking around Cambridge when he was doing his uh, his defil on um, the letter to the Romans, the Messiah and the people of God in Romans. And he was wrestling with Romans 7 and he'd read all the commentaries. He said, and then one day it clicked for him. What is this chapter about? Why did God give the law to, to, to Israel? Interestingly, Moe in his commentary, which is probably one of the finest scholarly commentaries that's come out in recent years, of popular expositions, he says he won't interact with many of those, but mm. he singles Lloyd-Jones out as an exception because he says there are tremendous exegetical insights. And the late Professor Howard Marshall, reviewing some of the Roman series, said um, sometimes the pastor has insights which are lost on the scholar. Striking. This man, he said, has done his scholarly work and has pastoral insight. Mm. So I, I think there's, there's been a, a move in some circles, perhaps because some people turned Lloyd-Jones into their Pope, mm. an understandable reaction. But I think of one young pastor who'd, who'd sort of bought into that, and he came to see me one day. Wow, he said, I've been reading Lloyd-Jones on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, terrific. He says he engages, he said he engages with the text. Mm. I said, well, of course he engages with the text. Whatever made you think he didn't? Well, he said, I just had this sort of misconception of him that mm. I picked up, that all he believed was get on your knees, pray for the power, and it will all happen. Right. Amen. Yeah. So he's, he's, he, Lloyd-Jones' sermons and writings have been a huge influence. Mm. Did um, you ever hear him? Did you know him? I did. In fact, I'd lunch with him as well. Oh, really? He, the first time I heard him was in 1974. I was home from Oxford for um, Easter holidays and he was preaching about 14 miles away on a Saturday night. He was there in a church for a weekend. It was electrifying. The place was packed to the doors. People, must have been about 1,500 people. Gracious me. On a Saturday night. Yeah, gracious. And what struck me was when he came into the pulpit, now, I'm not being mystical, I just sensed this man knows God. Mm. The preacher whom I knew quite well, I cringed because he gave him such a fulsome introduction. It, it, was, it was awful. And the doctor's head was going down, <laughs> down, down. But the text he preached on was this. If the whole church be gathered together and they come in one unlearned or unbelieving and all speak in tongues, he will say you are mad. 
But if all prophesy, he will be judged of all, he will be convinced of all. And the secrets of his heart will be made manifest. And so bowing down, he will worship God and go out and report, God is among you of a truth. Mm. It was electrifying. What is the church? That was his big ah, thesis. Awesome. He took us right through 1 Corinthians. They didn't understand what the church was. Right. He was heckled that night as well. Gracious. And he shut the heckler up. <laughs> he just carried on. This job heckled him. But he just carried on. Well, then the next term back in Oxford, he came to preach in the church I went to. Preach on the Sunday night. He preached on Felix. Wow. Lindsay took him back to the station afterwards. And went for, they went in for a cup of coffee, and just after they went in, they, they, they bolted the door because the cafe and the station was finished, you know, it was closing for the night. And these girls tried to get in, but the door was locked. And he said, the doctor just looked up, and he said it was as if he was miles away. Too late, foolish young virgins. Wow. Too late. And he said it wasn't said in a sarcastic way. He said it was as if what he had just preached was still in his head. The danger... Oh, it was just, it was a wonderful weekend. That's extraordinary. Wonderful weekend. Yeah. Joe Rigney tells a story who is, uh, who is an assistant to John Piper. And he said he'd be giving Piper a lift on a Friday. And he was supposed to be preaching on the Sunday. And Piper would be trying to deal with something in a text. And he was fascinated how things would become illuminated mm. when he was preparing the word yeah. for the people. Yeah. And he would find, if he had been just slaving over books for the sake of yeah. either self-indication yeah. or proving another guy yeah. wrong or just yeah. his own interest, things would not have flowed as they had. Yeah. And I think there's the, that's the dynamic. It's the service of the well, church. And, and that's why you'll think this is a strange thing for someone who lectures systematic theology in a theological <laughs> college to say, but that is not. why theology is for the church. Amen. Yeah, that's right. It's for the church. Well, that's yeah. why London Seminary the, is uh, what it does. Yes, it's, it's, it's not for the bookshelf, it's for, for the church, isn't it? That's and right. um, really, what we, we seek to do here is to ensure that when men go out, they feed and fire the people. I think it's going to be the two, feed and fire. Oh, yes, that's powerful. Yeah, that's uh, everyone, who's, everyone who has been listened to down through the years has said the same thing. Spurgeon says they come to see me burn. Uh, and I was encouraged when I heard, have you heard the Keller Clowney lectures on preaching? I've not, no. Oh, they're terribly... Is it Clowney or...? Yeah. Keller and Clowney did a whole series for um, RTS, I think. And in the final session, um, having given fantastic material, session after session after session, Keller just lists characters like Moody, Spurgeon, Lloyd-Jones, who had extraordinary encounters. I think he read that Pascal fire, fire yes. thing. But he... Um, he then challenges the room full of students. He says, do you know anything of this? Mm. And then he said, if not, why not? Yeah. And I found that encouraging yes. because Keller couldn't... I mean, you can't call him a, a mindless enthusiast. He's a guy yeah, who is... No. He's, he's quoting his Warfields and his Murrays and so yeah. on. But he, is, he says, the conclusion of this is you must know him. You must... <laughs> that's, that's, well, you see, you mentioned Warfield and Murray because it was Lloyd-Jones who really introduced Warfield right. into this country. Mm. Um, though he differed from Warfield on, on one or two points, mm. um, he felt, didn't he, that, that with Warfield you had the same theology that you had with Edwards, but with more exegetical precision. Mm. Interesting. And of course he was engaging with, um, he was engaging at the scholarly level with people who were, you know, dismantling historic Christianity. Mm. But Murray is an interesting character. Yes, see. yes. 
because Murray would go to listen to a black Methodist mm -hmm. because the man had passion. <laughs> Yes. Which is why I think that's how Al Martin first came over to the UK mm -hmm. um, at the Banner Conferences. It was John Murray who who said, I think, to Ian Murray that he had he'd heard some very fine preachers over the years, mm. but he said he felt that Al Martin had something very special about his ministry. Fascinating. That's fascinating. Now, what's striking to me is this also. We have come across occasionally people who criticise such ambition as pietism. But we find again and again and again, and I think it was Carson made the point in something I think he wrote on Philippians, that the people who have actually changed the nation mm. have had this same ambition, have had this same motivation. You read what Wilberforce says about how he was frustrated with the churchmen of his time, because where is the joy, oh. which is so frequently enjoined in the text. And you find similarly uh, um, Shaftesbury saying, you know, nobody can continue in a life of um, virtue unless he's drinking from the fountain of our Lord himself. This is not just some, somebody who can tick a box saying, I went to church on Sunday. They're people who knew yeah. an affectionate experience. I felt Christ, isn't it? This I is felt a, Christ. Yeah. I, I think there's a big theological issue at the base of that. Mm -hmm. And I think I touched on this at the Westminster Conference the other week. Mm. That if the soul is non-material, it is simple by which I mean it is indivisible, it does not consist of parts, just as God is a spirit without body parts, so the human soul is without parts. Mm. Therefore, it has faculties, it has a cognitive faculty, it has an affective faculty, it has a volitional faculty. I know that someone like Edwards would say, that Jonathan Edwards, that the affections are powerful movements of the will. Um, all right, I think I think there's a bit of a fine point there. Are there three or two faculties? But the point is that sin has disordered those faculties, ah. and the Holy Spirit is then reintegrating them. Therefore, it seems to me that in the new heavens and the new earth, everything that is known, that is lovely, will be enjoyed as lovely. The affective and the cognitive will marry each other. Mm -hmm. So actually, there's a very serious theological issue underpinning um, this idea of a felt Christ. Amen. It is not a kind of a, um, a sentimental pietism. Amen. It's a very real theological issue there That's right. that touches what is the nature of the human soul, what is the relationship between its cognitive, affective, and vo volitional faculties. Mm -hmm. and, and sanctification being imperfect in this life, they are never fully aligned. That's how some people will their cognitive faculty may be much more developed than their affective, mm. other than their affective may be more developed than their cognitive. Mm. Well, both are wrong. I think both that's one of the thrilling things about this moment is, of course, you've got your characters, PhDs like Carson and Piper and Keller, who are now are household names in the evangelical yes. circles, and they speak in similar terms. Yes. And it seems that the gospel that's being preached is not, um, I, it's an irresponsible use of words perhaps, but I hope don't hear what I'm not saying. It's not just a legal gospel. It's not just no. you've done um, uh, immoral things, but it is that you have sought to yes. satisfy your soul yeah. yes. in that which yes. will not satisfy it. Yes. And that, I think, of course, is the message which um, 
I mean, that is not, that isn't just some irrelevant message. That's a message which every, I think it was Glenn Scrivener said to me, of course, every magazine is encouraging repentance. Every magazine is saying, do this instead of that. We yeah. want something which will, yeah. which will satisfy the soul. And that's, again, something which comes from actual... Well, it's <laughs> this, Augustine. This is it. You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless till they find rest in you. It's, it's I was reading... Last evening, just wanted something before bed. I was reading a lovely, lovely book. Um, Thoughts, or is it Words Old and New? A, a collection of Horatius Bona uh, collected. Going right back to, he goes right back to the very early church fathers, right up to his day. But in that great hymn of his, uh, I heard the voice of Jesus say, Behold, I freely give the living water, thirsty one. Stoop down and drink and live. I came to Jesus and I drank of that life-giving stream. My thirst was quenched, my soul revived, and now I live in him. And I think it was his brother, Andrew Boner, was asked, what is the secret of your life, Mr. Boner? And uh, he said something like this, well, ever since I knew the Lord, the door to the throne of grace has always been open and there's never been a day when I've not had access there. Oh, bless God. Isn't that marvellous? Yeah, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Now, the, these are Free Church of Scotland, Amen. Presbyterian right. men, yes. but they believed in a felt Christ. Amen, amen. It was an experiential dimension. Yes, there. and the fruit is beautiful. I like, Wonderful. Uh, for example, it was, you reminded, reminded yourself last week how when plague hit London... The people who stayed, who Puritans, served, and yeah. who died were the Puritans. Yes. Yes. Now, um, and uh, so you, the person I asked you to, who has had a, an influence of you historically, that would be the doctor. Well, others as well. I'd have to say Spurgeon. My, my wife, if she were here now, if she feels my preaching is getting heavy or dry, she'll say, you need to read some Spurgeon. Mm. And... I can be a very introspective man. I am a very introspective man, and it's taken me years to get out of uh, um, a wrong introspection. And can be very, very sensitive and get to read Spurgeon, she'd say. And sometimes I would literally be splitting my sides, laughing at myself yeah. in the right sense. The minister's fainting fits in his lectures to my students. I remember at one stage, years ago, he's warning against the pastor becoming suspicious of his people. And he speaks of him like a some sort of giant spider in the middle of this web. And the merest touch causes him to sort of shake. I was killing myself laughing uh, at myself. Yeah. I think Spurgeon gets to the heart. Mm. Um, or to have what he had. I think he's got a wonderful line. I, I, I don't know if it's in the soul winner. He says, sometimes when I've been firing the gospel cannon and fear that it's making no impression, I roll myself up into the cannon and fire my heart at the people. Wow, that's tremendous. <laughs> that's not. Now, if I can ride a little um, hobby horse for a few moments. Mm. I get a bit concerned at advertisements for pastors. We want someone to teach the Bible. I think it was Jonathan Edwards who said, once you've done your exegetical exposition work, that's just like lining the guns upon the ship. Now you're going to fire them. Mm. 
And yes, we want to teach the Bible. We want the word, the whole word and nothing but the word. But there's got to be more to preaching than teaching the Bible. Mm -hmm. Was it Phillips Brooks who said truth coming through personality? Okay. And the personality, we beseech you mm -hmm. as though God were beseeching you by us, Paul says. Mm -hmm. Paul's personality comes through there, yes, yes. which is different from Peter's. But whether it's Paul or Peter, brother, we beseech you as though God were beseeching you. Now that, it seems to me, is what Spurgeon is saying. Mm. Um, Firing his heart at people. It's McChain. Mm -hmm. He's dying to have you converted. Mm -hmm. Now that's a lot more than teaching Amen. the Bible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I do get a bit concerned. Somebody may have certain skills to understand a text. I mean, a saved person. They can understand the text. They can then order their thoughts in a coherent way. They can put in a few illustrations that will lighten it. That, in my view, is not preaching. That's communication, yes, but preaching has got something of God in it, mm -hmm. and it's got something of the heart of God. So it's not just the text. It's it, it's it's what Calvin speaks of. It's as though God Himself were addressing us, and Calvin, mm -hmm. in in would speak of preaching as the Word of God. He, he doesn't yes. mean yes, that yes, the yes, preacher yes. is the same as the biblical writers. He's very clear on that. But he does believe this to be an encounter. Mm -hmm. a, 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 an old pastor in Wales, a very spiritually minded man, who ploughed faithfully for many years. I remember him saying to me once, um, a, a meeting should be an event. Mm -hmm. And that has stuck with me because the hemorrhaging of evangelicals in some parts of, especially the States, to Eastern Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism, I think they are seeing with all the razzmatazz, there's no event. Mm. Equally, I think some people who've been in an overly cerebral church go into things charismatic because they think something should be happening. Now, they are right. I think they've got the wrong diagnosis. Because I, I, I think when, when Spurgeon got up and preached, when Lloyd-Jones preached, when McChain preached, it was an event. There was an encounter with the living God. Mm. It was not just trafficking in ideas. Yes, yes. And the striking thing is, don't you find, I, there's a part, there's a part where Stott says something about, yes, that the moment, the moment yes, when yes. the Holy Spirit, I've noticed looking at our, I'm taking some of the young people on our estate in East London through Romans, and there will be, you are very aware that yeah. the Lord is doing something yeah. as you're speaking, and the authority, you're catching yeah. them, because the variables about which you're describing, they yeah. touch all people. And when you trumpet Christ, it's like yes. the Holy Spirit says, yes! Yes, I, I, and this has got nothing to do with, even with a person's particular theology, because um, people have often contrasted Lloyd-Jones and Stott. But I have a wonderful memory of Stott doing a mini-mission in Oxford. And was it a mini-mission? Yes, it was. It, 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 it wasn't, it wasn't. He'd come for the weekend... He preached a wonderful message on the Saturday night on Daniel, but on the Sunday, the meeting was not in the Northgate Hall where we used to meet. It was in the the Union, the debating hall, because a lot of people were being invited. This was, and the title was "Waiting for God." Wow, it was a wonderful night. He preached Christ mm -hmm. gloriously. He took the title of Beckett's play "Waiting for God." Oh, and some people alike. 
these characters in Becker's play, they're waiting for God. And then he said, but you're too late, he's come. And, and then it, it, was a, it was a wonderful message. I, I, it's still vivid, where he spoke of Christ the night before he died and the communion. And he said, look, this is expounding what the cross would be. And he, he tied it in with Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, running up the hill, coming to the cross. It was a moment. God was in the meeting. And I think that's important mm -hmm. because Stott was a careful expositor of the word. Mm -hmm. Lloyd-Jones was a careful expositor of the word. Lloyd-Jones was Welsh, Stott was English. Lloyd-Jones was brought up in one context, Stott was brought up in a public school. But the hand of God was on the two of them. Mm -hmm. and, and, and the Holy Spirit doesn't run in humanly prescribed channels. Yes. Oh, he's, he, he'll only work through this preacher, he'll only work through that preacher. No, 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 no. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work like that. Yeah, that's the wonderful mercy of it. I heard Keller at, the, at Westminster Chapel. My dad invited him to speak at a thing a few years ago now and he said that does, he sees that as a vindication of the gospel that it Absolutely. doesn't just uh, appeal to one sort yes. and I find that beautiful in the, yeah, that's what, yes and I'm thinking of another I, I'm then thinking of a pen well I, I think think of a man like Dick Lucas I was tremendously mm. moved reading um, in a magazine years ago about a fellow who worked in very high up in insurance in the city and they had their Christmas party and there were lots of nude dancing girls and it was that sort of thing. He was a married man, children. A few days later he went to his child's um, Christmas concert. And he was just so shaken. The purity of uh, the Christmas story. One of his work colleagues, this got him thinking, my life isn't right. One of his work colleagues invited him to a Dick Lucas lunchtime meeting. He said, I heard the good news. Proclaimed with great authority. Save. So you could take another sort of man. I don't know if I should say this. I don't know if I should say this. But a friend of mine worked with Dick. And I remember him just saying, uh, you won't get Dick out late at night. He's at prayer very early in the morning. Hmm. Now that's the side that people don't see. Yes. Yeah. And, and that's, I think, the common denominator with these men. Yeah. Communion with God, Amen. whether it's Dick, whether it's Scott, whether it's Lloyd Jones, or whether now at a different fellow who used to be in Slough called Billy Richards, W. T. H. Richards. He used to edit, he was a Pentecostal, he used to edit a magazine called Dedication. Always plugging Banner of Truth books in there. <laughs> Always plugging John Owen. <laughs> but you see, Derek Swan, who used to be in, in Ashford in Middlesex, there was a fellow converted in the church there, and not long afterwards, the doctor was due to preach for Billy Richards in Slough. And Derek took this fellow along. He said it was a tremendous night. He rang the doctor up a few days later to, just to say how much he'd valued the evening. And the doctor said to him, Do you know, he said, when I got into that church, he said, I was in a state of such exhaustion, I didn't know how I was going to stand up, let alone preach. Wow. But when that man Richards prayed, wow. I felt he grafted me <laughs> into the heavens. So there, you, there you've got, you've got Dick, Stott, yeah. Lloyd Jones, Billy Richards. The common denominator is, love the word of God, love the Lord, love the people, and men who cultivated communion yeah, yeah, with God. Yeah, yeah. Now that doesn't mean to say that theological differences don't matter, but it does mean they have to get into a perspective. Yes. So 
What's new with you at the moment, Stephen? What are you up to at the moment? What's, what's... So I think perseverance. Um, with all I've said about the felt Christ, I think our personal circumstances were so difficult for... Some years ago, my, my father-in-law had Alzheimer's. My mother-in-law and father-in-law came to live with us. They hadn't been there long, and my mother-in-law um, was diagnosed with terminal cancer. Um, at that point, my wife was just recovering from major surgery. This is back in 2007. Then my mother-in-law died, so we had my father-in-law with us. And it had its funny moments. He thought my wife was his wife. They were joined at the hip. My wife was confined to the home a lot. People in the church would come and sit every Sunday morning so she could get to church. But she felt, Lord, these are my marching orders. I'm to care for my dad. He'd ask her, <coughs> he'd ask her, what I want to know is why are you always having your food with that cheeky article who keeps coming in <laughs> Daddy's my husband, and there would be a moment where he would realise, and there'd be a look of horror, and then of course he'd forgotten. Anyway, he was with us for quite a while. Then he was hospitalised, and he had to go into a home. So he was in a home about twelve miles away. So there was a lot of visiting there. He died, and it wasn't long after that there was a, a problem in the church and with, with, a, with a, a couple, so the fellow came and lived. We had an extension, he lived in the extension, and he was there for a while. Then, after he left, it wasn't that long, and then my mother came to live with us. She died in January this year, she was only a month off, 99. And so she lived with us for a while. So we were, uh, it was strange, because she would take her, all her meals with us, and... Uh, it was unusual. My, my wife was so curtailed. She's a very busy sort of person and, and outgoing. But so much of her life was now confined in the home. And also our, our children, our, our middle son, who now lives in Mallorca, at that time he was living not far from us. And his wife was rushed into hospital with major back surgery. So we had uh, their three children for two weeks around the clock. And then for six weeks until my son came home from work every day. And so we just had a lot of demands like that on, on our time. And we've always tried to have an open home. And with, with um, something Edith Schaefer said, a home has hinges and a lock. Hinges to let outsiders in and a lock so you can just be a family. Well, we couldn't have so many outsiders in with um, my, my father-in-law as he was, and then even with my mother, we, we, it wasn't quite the same. Then so much time having to be given when um, my, my daughter-in-law was unwell. So perseverance, and, and then oh, oh, my, my mother's died now, my, my son's living in uh, um, Spain now. But in terms of what I said, what I felt, Christ, that's going to be balanced as well with something which... I think was once in Christopher Columbus's diary. Often he would have in this journal, sailed on, <laughs> sailed on, <laughs> sailed on. The plod of living the Christian life. Mm -hmm. Going on and um, seeking to shepherd people when perhaps some of them go through real difficulties. 
and when there hasn't been excitement. Now I say that we we had, had a broadcast service a few back in November. Radio Wales has a uh, a religious um, program every Sunday morning, a service, and we recorded two services. And some of the people were just so excited, and, and it was a, they were good services, I think. But you can't live on that. You can't live on excitement. And I'm just a bit concerned that some of our people, if, if, if we have a real, we've got a big event on Wednesday, God willing, uh, um, uh, in a restaurant. We've got a carols in a restaurant. Last year, over 100 outsiders came into that. So we've got it this Wednesday. Um, if that goes well, people will have a, oh, this is good. But we've got to encourage ourselves in the Lord our God, Amen. not just in things happening. Yes. So I think that's one of the big lessons. Mm -hmm. Is there something you wish you had known starting out in ministry? Or is there something you wish you're, see, you're seeing too little of in the church, which you thought we were doing better earlier or something? I, I think that the generation that came before me were men of wonderful godliness. Uh, you didn't have a Christian celebrity culture such as you have now. I felt, uh, even those who were well known, um, I think, think of a man like Stott, think of a man like Lloyd-Jones, think of a man like Dick Lucas. Humble. Mm. Humble men. Mm. Men didn't take themselves too seriously. Um, godly, humble. And, and then a whole host of men who, who weren't known, and perhaps men not as greatly gifted as those three. Uh, men who just gave themselves to the work. I, I wonder if... I, I wonder if that note of humility... Mm. I, I think I would never have spoken to some of the older men in the way that some younger men will speak to older men today. Now, maybe I was too much the other extreme, perhaps I was a bit too... But I respected the men. Something Stuart Olliott once said, of that older generation, he said many of them shed blood, as it were, for their convictions. It was costly. Wow. Because they came on the scene... You see, you think of the plethora of good books there are today. One wonders if some of the younger men were preaching, if they were told, right, there's your Greek Testament. Don't look at any commentary. Get on your knees, study it, and let's see if you will really get out of that text. Because I, I, I do worry that some men are just preaching what, are, what men say in commentaries. Um, Howell Jones once said to us, I do not want a commentator to do my devotions. Mm -hmm. I want a commentator simply to help me in understanding, am I understanding the text are right, right. or have I missed something? And those men had to do their own thinking, you yeah, see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think that's one of the things. One of my great heroes, this is a book that's influenced me, is Archibald Alexander. He was the first professor at Princeton Seminary. I, I, I do think he, he is one of the greatest men in the history of the church. His book, Thoughts on Religious Experience, is a wonderful book. But when he was a young man, his pastor said to him, if you would be a theologian, and Alexander was a great pastor, great preacher, lived through revival, he said, it's not a matter of reading lots of books, it's a matter of thinking. Alexander used to spend an hour a day meditating. 
just take a verse, he would think on it. He read, he read voraciously, but he thought, and there's an originality about him. Mm. So that although he was a man committed to the Westminster standards, in his treatment of assurance, he penetrates, I think, even more deeply than Westminster because he says temperament comes into it. Some people are far more optimistic than others. Two men with exactly the same experience and the same evidence of the grace of God may be differing their assurance. The one man can see the evidence. Oh yes, I have passed from death to life. One John. I do love the brothers. I, I am seeking to walk with God. The other is doing exactly the same thing but he's a half-empty man. He doesn't see it. And so Alexander's point is temperament. So he was a great physician of the soul. In fact, there's a wonderful story of one of his students who went to um, India and came back ten years later. He had never, ever known anything but that Alexander knew it and knew more about it. He thought, at last, I know about India and he doesn't. He went to see Alexander and he came out an hour later. And he was serious. He said, he knows more about India than I know. But he, he worked with Samuel Miller, the professor of church history. Alexander was clearly the greater man in, in every respect. They never had a misword. And Samuel, Samuel Miller said, I verily believe that Dr. Alexander is the greatest man who walks the earth. Wow. His book on thoughts of religious experience is probably the only book I know of which probably has as much on death and dying as on living. Mm. When he was dying, he was a huge influence on Charles Hodge, you see. Charles Hodge said it was the most un-deathbed-like room you could be into. Alexander was cheerful, happy, and after Hodge's last meeting with him, Alexander was greatly contented. Hodge went in an agony of weeping. Um, Alexander passed on to him this, this walking stick, that some chieftain from the Sandwich Islands had given him, and he passed it on to Hodge. He said, let this be the symbol of orthodoxy that's passed from me to you. And Hodge went from that meeting in an agony of weeping. Wow. He was a wonderful man of God, Alexander. <laughs> and he always went to the sources. So he wouldn't read what Protestants wrote about Catholics. He would read mm. what the Catholics said. He wouldn't read what Arminians, people said what Arminians, he would read what Arminians said. And he was a great man, he, he preferred the fellowship of the living to the dead. So he would always be interrupted, though he, though he read voraciously, he would allow himself to be interrupted. He was a great horseman, a great fisherman, a great swimmer, he was a man of action. Somebody in Princeton said of him, Dr. Alexander must have been a very wicked, evil man when he was young because his knowledge of the twists and turns of the human heart ah. is so... He was a wonderful... Uh, he, he, he's in my study looking down on me. <laughs> As that photograph of Lloyd-Jones looks down on us, oh, there's a painting of Archibald that looks down on me. Well, it's been fantastic to have this time with you, Stephen. We have gone, I think, double the time Sorry, we... Sorry. <laughs> well, this is the time you have a Welshman. <laughs> For more episodes of the Christian Heritage London podcast and for information on Christian Heritage London events, tours and walks, please go to christianheritagelondon.org.